Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Among his essays, critical and clinical, Gilles Deleuze has one entitled Bartleby or the Formula, and this is referencing Herman Melville's short story Bartleby the Scrivener that many of people have encountered and from which they probably only remember the famous formula I would prefer not to. That's actually even been turned into memes in recent times as well. The essay that Deleuze provides us here with is going to cover not just Bartleby the Scrivener, but also connected up with Moby Dick and with Billy Budd, with some other authors' works, and eventually talk about American pragmatism. But we should concentrate first on what he begins with, which is this formula, the I would prefer not to, that Bartleby tells to the attorney over and over again. And the first thing that he talks about, the first point that Deleuze settles on, is the agrammaticality of this formula, or let's call it the potential agrammaticality, because as he's going to tell us, it has the same force, the same role as an agrammatical formula, but he's not committing himself to whether it truly is agrammatical. So we have to, well, what is agrammaticality? What, what is this? And he tells us, linguists have analyzed what we call agrammaticality. A number of very intense examples can be found, for example, in the work of E.E. E. Cummings, the poet, for instance, the formula, he danced his did, as if one said in French, il dansa son me, he danced his began. And he goes on and says, this presupposes a series of ordinary grammatical variables, which would have an agrammatical formula as their limit. And that's an important term, limit right there. He also talks uh, about, very briefly, Lewis Carroll and portmanteau words. What does that mean? Made up words that sometimes are smushed together, sound like other words. Great example of this would be in Carroll's Jabberwocky, right? If you've ever read that, twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and jimble in the way. What are those words? Well, those are words that Carroll made up. And there's a agrammaticality to that as well, but in a different sense. All, not all agrammaticality is the same. So he says that Here's some other examples. Perhaps it would be better to take an example from the French in a practical situation. Someone who wants to hang something on a wall and holds a certain number of nails in his hands exclaims, Jean et un de pas assez. I have one not enough. It's not quite said properly, right? But, but it's, it's understandable. At least it seems like it's understandable. And within a practical situation, you can say, I know exactly what the, this guy means, but you could also be confused by it. So he says, wouldn't Bartleby formula be of this type? At once a stereotypy of Bartleby's and a highly poetic expression of Melville's. The limit of such of a series such as, I would prefer this, I would prefer not to do that. That is not what I would prefer. And he says, well, no, that's not precisely what's going on. This not to is the key here. He says, the formula is grammatically correct, syntactically correct, but its abrupt termination not to 
leaves what it rejects undetermined and confers on it a kind of limit function. So maybe it has the same role as an A grammatical formula. And a little bit later in a really important passage, about four pages into the essay, Deleuze tells us that the formula at first seems like the bad translation of a foreign language. Once we understand it better, once we hear it more clearly, its splendor refutes this hypothesis. Perhaps it is the formula that carves out a kind of foreign language within language. And then he brings up E. Cummings again and says, you know, if we delve into his stuff and kind of lay it all out, we can see that there is a different dialect here. Maybe that's part of what's going on with Bartleby. And then he says, well, it's, it's not exactly a dialect. He says the rule would lie in this logic of negative preference, this logic, a different logic here. So that's a good starting point. Deleuze also brings up very shortly after that, that there are a number of variants and circumstances in which the formula is being used. Why is he doing this in, in that essay? Is this just being a literary critic and you know, showing us how thorough he is? Is this part of establishing his own expertise, being a master in a certain way? I'm not actually going to provide you with an answer. I'll just say this is a good thing to think about. And I would suggest that the leading clue to this is the term copy, which gets used a lot in this essay and in the work itself, Bartleby the Scrivener, as one of the things that he's not going to do, right? So let's come back to this. And Deleuze says that there are several variants. This is an important point. He says, Sometimes it abandons the conditional and becomes more curt. I prefer not to. Sometimes, as in its final occurrences, it seems to lose its mystery by being completed by an infinitive and is coupled with to. I prefer to give no answer. I would prefer not to be a little reasonable. I would prefer not to take a clerkship. I would prefer to be doing something else. And he says, but even in these cases, we sense the muted presence of the strange form that continues to haunt Bartleby's language. And what is he pointing at here? Something very interesting. And I'm, I'm going to bring up an analogy to somebody who you wouldn't think of bringing into connection with Deleuze. But when I read this, I was like, oh yeah, these, what's happening here is kind of the same thing, even though the referent is very different. St. Anselm of Canterbury, very famous for what? The ontological argument, which he doesn't call an ontological argument. And what, you know, readers call by that name is only a portion of Anselm's single argument, unum argumentum. But there is a really important phrase that's a linchpin in whatever the argument happens to be, quo maius cogitari non posit, in Latin, right? In English, that than which nothing greater can be thought, that than which nothing greater can be conceived. That's a weird kind of formula, sort of like I would prefer not to, except it's referring to God. So instead of like a blank, there's supposed to be like an infinity there. And here's where it gets really interesting. And I think there's an analogy. So Bartleby uses the formula in a couple different ways, which means that it's not just the magic words themselves. I would prefer not to. It could be framed in other ways. Anselm does that in Proslogion too. Sometimes it's quo maius cogitare non posit, and sometimes it's framed in slightly different language, right? So non posit, non valiet. Does it change the meaning? Not exactly. And you can say, what's going on there? Is this like just to embellish, to make it more interesting? That's an interesting question in itself. 
Bartleby uses the formula according to, to Deleuze in 10 principal circumstances, 10 different places. We're not going to look at all of these. He says that Bartleby is a copyist in the attorney's office. He copies ceaselessly, silently, palely, mechanically. The first instance takes place when the attorney tells him to proofread and collate the two clerk's copies. And he says, I would prefer not to. So that's the first one. The second, when the attorney tells Bartleby to come and reread his own copies. The third, when the attorney invites Bartleby to reread with him personally, tete-a-tete. -tete. The fourth, when the attorney wants to send him on an errand. The fifth, when he asks him to go into the next room. And it goes on and on and on, right? And he says that the formula burgeons and proliferates. So he says, at each occurrence, there is a stupor surrounding Bartleby as if one had heard the unspeakable or the unstoppable. So this, this formula is getting bigger and bigger and bigger in the work through these circumstances. And we can ask another question that Deleuze then treats. What are the effects of this formula? Why is it, it's not magic really, but it seems almost like magic. Why does it do what it does? And what does it do? Deleuze uses terms like ravaging, devastating. He talks about it being contagious to others. And it's definitely disruptive of the good order of the office or the intentions of the attorney. In fact, it's contagious, almost like a brain worm, in that they start using that expression about preferring not to. And Bartleby says, oh, you've caught it, right? More importantly, according to Deleuze, it renders actions impossible for Bartleby. It, it, I won't say traps him, but it does sort of hem him in. So he says, from the moment that Bartleby says, I would prefer not to collate, he's no longer able to copy either. And yet he will never say that he prefers not to copy. He's simply passed beyond this stage. Doubtless he does not realize this immediately since he continues copying until after the sixth instance. When he does notice it, it seems obvious, like the delayed reaction that was already implied in the first statement of the formula. And here he talks about a formula block. The effect of it is not only to impugn what Bartleby prefers not to do, but also to render what he was doing impossible. This is an interesting thing to note. It makes it practically impossible within the logic that Bartleby's working in, something that is still possible for, you know, in general, for everybody else. And there's a really great formula that Deleuze has here. Eliminates the preferable just as mercilessly as any non-preferred. So the formula doesn't just exclude what's not being preferred. It also generates a range in which there's, there's nothing being preferred. How does it have that, that force? Well, you know, the clue to this lies in that paragraph that I brought up before, where Deleuze said the rule would lie in this logic of negative preference. He follows that immediately by talking about a negativism beyond all negation. Now that's a very interesting thing to say, isn't it? It's kind of redolent of Heidegger's nothing, is it not, right? Heidegger's nothing that is not merely the negation of all or each thing, but is there and cannot be grasped as a concept, but is there in all of our nihilative, our nothing bringing behavior. Is this exactly the same thing? I would not say it's exactly the same thing, but it's certainly in the, the neighborhood. He also tells us that the formula, and this is something you might contest. 
He says that the formula is neither an affirmation nor a negation. Bartleby does not refuse, but neither does he accept, right? He advances and then withdraws into this advance. Let's pause for a second. Is that really true? It's not an affirmation? I mean, in a trivial sense, it is an affirmation. I would prefer not to. I'm asserting of myself that I would not want to do X. Yes, you're right. That That is, in fact, again, in a trivial sense, an affirmation. But it's an affirmation of something that's swallowed up by the, the negation within it or the putting something aside within it, isn't it? It's not just a negation, though, either. And this is where we get to something quite interesting on a pragmatic level. He says that the attorney would be relieved if Bartleby did not want to, but Bartleby does not refuse. He simply rejects a non-preferred. He also doesn't accept either, right? So he doesn't refuse or accept. He doesn't follow the logic of the attorneys following a different logic. And he says that he rejects a, a, a non-preferred and posits the impossibility of anything else. So he says, in short, the formula that successively refuses every other act has already engulfed the act of copying, which it no longer even needs to refuse. And he says it not only abolishes the term it refers to and that it rejects, but it abolishes the other term it seemed to preserve. And that becomes an impossible. Here Deleuze says something else that's very interesting. He claims that the formula hollows out a zone, as he calls it, an ever-expanding zone of indiscernibility or indetermination between some non-preferred activities and a preferable activity. All particularity, all reference is abolished. The formula annihilates copying. What does it mean to have a zone of indiscernibility or indetermination? So indetermination means things are not actually settled as being this or that, right? Again, very bad for office discipline. Indiscernibility, not being able to tell the difference between things, right? Not being able to discern what things actually are. And what are the, what are the actual things here? Actions. Actions and volitions. So this is quite important. And now talking about volitions brings us to a, a last point that Deleuze is noting here that I think is quite important. He tells us that I would prefer nothing than something, not a will to nothingness though, but the growth of a nothingness of the will. The will itself is instead of driving after nothingness, taking nothingness as its object, is whatever we want to say, contaminated, shot through and through with nothingness. And therefore, whatever will is coming out of it, whatever volition it is directing is a negating or negative one, a negativism, right? And so this is a good place to, to pause. Does this tell us everything we need to know about this interesting formula? It remains kind of, I don't want to say a mystery, but something that we, we have to continue to think through and penetrate into. And it's also got this feature of once you, once you start thinking about it, it's a little bit difficult to put it aside. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. 
Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.